themes of the Lean Out podcast is open inquiry. And my guest on the program today has some thoughts on this. He's concerned about the suppression of discussion and debate and viewpoint diversity in the field of addiction. And he points to specific actions from the BC government and the BC Centre for Substance Use. But as we'll learn at the end of today's episode, both view the issue quite differently. Julian Summers is a clinical psychologist, a distinguished professor at Simon Fraser University, and the director of its Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. Julian Summers is my guest today on Lean Out. Julian, welcome to Lean Out. Great to be with you, Tara. It's so nice to have you on. I am um, from Vancouver. I did my both my degrees at SFU. And the issue we're going to be talking about today is one I care really deeply about. Um, let's start by just sort of describing, uh, there are listeners in other countries for this podcast. Let's start by describing the current overdose crisis in British Columbia in 2020, according to the Stanford Lancet Commission. Drug overdose deaths in Canada rose by 67% in that single year. And according to the National Post, the BC government has spent $1 billion on this issue since declaring a health emergency in 2016. Walk us through where BC is currently at when it comes to the toll this epidemic is taking. Wow. Uh, I'll say up front, it's likely impossible to do the issue justice given the the many ways in which not only the deaths that are, are so arresting um, impact people's lives, but you know the the problem of having an ever increasing death toll is that that wouldn't be it's not possible to have that unless there is an ever increasing replacement of people who are at similar risk to those who've succumbed already and experienced those risks before. So we have to look elsewhere in our society to see what's the evidence of uh, a larger uh, iceberg that that makes it possible for this kind of a, a crisis to continue. And some of the ways that that's evident are over the same, well, over recent years, it's a slightly longer trajectory, really over a decade, the numbers of people who have been involuntarily hospitalized in BC for substance use disorder. So we have have involuntary hospitalization for other types of mental illnesses where people are a risk to themselves or to other people. But when those risks are specifically related to substance use, it it, tell, it suggests a different dynamic, and so we've we've seen, as I said, a, a more than doubling of involuntary hospitalizations for substance use. We've also seen an increasing use of our correctional facilities. So we can in BC um, in provincial corrections we ha- we detain about eleven thousand people a year. That's what we have room for. Um, and about half of them are detained without a sentence, uh, so-called remanded into custody, and others are sentenced. But regardless of the reason why people are detained, it's a similar picture emerges there that now we're using, uh, in the most recent year we had available, which is only 2018, more than three quarters 
of the people who had been detained for any reason had been diagnosed beforehand. So this is this is a conservative estimate because these are people who have records in our medical system of diagnoses involving substance use, mental disorders, or very often both. So what I mean by that is people who've been diagnosed with a substance use disorder and also with a disorder like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and who are being detained. Then we have other evidence of people increasingly living rough on streets. It used to be certain neighborhoods and even certain cities where this was talked about. Now it's really throughout the entire province. Small towns, communities are affected. So there, there is a, a huge backdrop of despair and suffering that goes along with the more blunt and shocking um, evidence of, of fatalities involving drugs. Hmm. And that's really important context to have. And, and for listeners, you know, outside of Canada as well, I think it's important to know that BC has recently embarked on a three-year pilot project to decriminalize possession of small amounts of certain drugs. Walk us through the province's current ethos when it comes to addiction and how this approach came about. To be honest with you, for, for people like myself, it's a, it's a little hard for people working in the field of addiction to make a lot of sense of the approach we're taking. You, you referred a moment ago to the work of the Stanford Lancet Commission, a, a colleague, Dr. Keith Humphreys, shared that process. Um, their their recommendations are considerable. They, 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 they've addressed the, the crisis in both Canada and the U.S., so they're 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 trying to propose things that are meant to be helpful in our context and they mention many things but they also highlight two things that they say by the way um people should be skeptical of these things while you're contemplating what to do one of those things was installing vending machines to dispense drugs to people the second was to establish a pharmaceutical supply of drugs with the hope of displacing the illicit supply. BC is doing both of those things conspicuously. Sorry, just to cut in. So does that mean safe supply, what you're yeah. referring to? Yeah. Well, so I should have said, no, it doesn't, because because the term you've used is, is not a scientific term or one that the Stanford Lancet Commission or, or my colleagues and I use. We use the descriptor of public supply of addictive drugs, um, which is meant to be uh, descriptive. The term safe supply seemed to come out of nowhere. There was and remains no evidence that the practice that is referred to is beneficial for people. There's lots of evidence that it's harmful or poses risks, I should say. But the very uh, sort of the branding of a practice in the absence of any evidence as safe supply is just a sort of a, a bit of a head turner from within the field, um, you know, because it's it, it's it's really a blatantly uncautious a way of representing a practice that's fraught with risk. But the back to the so your question on on our provincial approach. The, the document that summarizes this, I think, most clearly is uh, one written by our provincial health officer, and it was the basis for the federal government's deliberations on whether to grant this three-year exemption. The document refers, I think, correctly to the goal of decriminalizing drug users. And what I mean by that is 
there's ample evidence, and my, my team and I have, have done about 20 years of research looking at uh, how people with addictions are involved with courts, corrections, medical facilities, or hospitals, and also with uh, the plight of living homeless. And through that work, it's clear that people with severe addictions are preventively and recurrently exposed to police, courts, and corrections. So decriminalizing those individuals is a laudable goal, one we should be pursuing. The problem is that the landing place of the provincial health officer was on decriminalizing possession. Mm -hmm. And to illustrate why this, I think, is, is relatively useless, in some of our research, looking at 15,000 British Columbians diagnosed with opiate use disorder, they had on average five sentences apiece, so 70,000 for this large group. Of that total number, possession accounted for 3.8% of their sentences, the reasons they were sentenced. Usually it's bundled, by the way, when it appears, it's usually bundled with a more serious offense. Arresting officers are, are adding it to, to lend some further emphasis to the um, safety risks that, that, that an individual posed in the course of committing a, a, an offense. So the majority of these offenses, more than 50%, involve theft because people are relying on theft to survive. It's, 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 uh, they're, they're, they're overwhelmingly unemployed. And about another 10% are associated with violent offenses. And these are due in part to the chaos that they're surrounded by and forced to live with. And, and also the fact that many of, of this particular group of 15,000, over one third had been diagnosed also with either schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So they're dealing with a considerable amount of chaos um, associated with their own thoughts and experiences. So decriminalizing possession while leaving the other determinants of these people's well-being unaddressed, is very, it's very difficult to see how that is going to result in any improvement. Mm -hmm. And it, just to pull back for a moment, I mean, you mentioned in our correspondence, you were recently in Alberta, you were speaking in a national conference on addiction recovery and serving with an international expert advisory group. First, let's talk a little bit about the international perspective on addiction versus the BBC perspective. How, how do those two diverge? Well, they're, they're quite varied. Um, if we bring to mind places with incredibly punitive policies, Singapore comes to mind and others with relatively, um, um, testing the boundaries of a more laissez-faire approach, which I, unfortunately BC wouldn't be in that group now. There are a number sort of, uh, in between and, uh, you know, we have to kind of, Think of what would be sensible comparators. Like, who do we want to be like? Right? Do we want to be more like Oregon or more like Norway? <laughs> more like, well, probably, you know, it's probably, it's been in my experience. So just growing up, this is a personal observation that we've tended to look more to uh, Western European countries, countries with well established social safety nets as uh, as comparators i'm not sure if that's lo any longer true um my experience actually is that this would be a good point um in my view for canadians to reconsider our social contract and what what really do we want for one another in this regard it's clear we can do a lot better 
that's for sure. A number of places have made have have encountered very serious crises involving involving substance use and addiction, and have made major changes. Portugal is probably the most well known example, but it's important to emphasize, I think, that before putting their national strategy to paper, there was a, a considerable effort made at national consensus building. The document itself refers to the fact that there is a place every Portuguese citizen must see themselves in this strategy. So we're we're not there yet. We certainly didn't have that type of consensus building prior to developing the case for decriminalization in BC. My understanding, too, is that Portugal poured a lot more resources into treatment as well. Is that correct? The document is a national strategy for the fight against drugs. It sounds very kind of like almost war on drugs like, but um, that could be that could simply be a translation. But it is true that the the document and the the ethos and the follow through are not pro drug, not even pro drug as like a lifestyle choice. And um, when when it comes to and recall that you know the, one of the main catalysts was the prevalence of open-air drug use and related fatalities in just about every Portuguese town, the highest level in, in Europe. And they said in the in the document, and this is part of what they did follow through on, that um, when it comes to treatment, and this is a direct quote, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as addiction treatment without social reintegration. So we have to think about that. It means like a home and a job and people that you network with and who are your people. And so that's really, and so how do you do that? Well, they did it with 60 something therapeutic communities. And by the way, because they had made such a forceful commitment to social reintegration for those that needed it in their vision, they made all of these changes without a single drug consumption site. This is not an argument against consumption sites. But it's a but it but it makes the point that if we are committed as a society, or if one is committed as a member of a society, to ensuring that everyone who needs a home has a home, everyone who needs an opportunity for work and wants to work has an opportunity to pursue that, then we don't need consumption sites because everyone has a consumption site. It's their place, uh, just like everyone else in Canadian society today who uses drugs. So their 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 goal was not drug free or anything of that sort. It was it was everybody having a place, and their vision has was uh, you know incredibly resonant, which is key to its success. It, it has to be something that's you know supported by the population in a very substantial way. And in terms of within this country, Alberta is taking a different approach than BC. Walk me through how that approach is different. This is if you've ever thought about this metaphor of, you know, like building the airplane while you're flying They're do That's what they're doing there. It's an incredibly ambitious sea change in uh, Canadian responses to addiction. I'll, I'll exempt Quebec from my comments because I know Quebec always has a, has a distinct thing going on. But in most in, in other provinces, at least they're um, uh, shifting resources much in the same way that. Portugal did, to my prior comments. They are shifting resources 
in order to create opportunities that previously were not available in Alberta, are not available in BC. So this includes things like therapeutic communities or therapeutic living units where people can go for extended periods of time, um, experience enough practice living without taking drugs. Uh, so this, uh, this would be for people who have relatively severe addictions, but also developing skills and abilities, developing networks that will enable them to relocate following the completion of their stays and um, not only have places to live, but have the opportunity to work and apply skilled, uh, work in skilled occupations. They've eliminated things like um, user fees for people to gain access. They've, they've implemented programs through police, for instance, that would enable people who've been detained to help ensure that once they're released, they're, um, first of all, that they're not going to be at higher risk for a poisoning due to reduced tolerance. So that there are, there are medications that are available that, that can last from 24 hours, but to 30 days. These are medications that are not cheap. They're, they're about a thousand dollars per administration, but they've made them available universally. So the police with pretty, you know, a very uh, minimal uh, friction can make these kinds of services available to people. And then they're building out the full continuum. So our work together uh, advising the government is to look at the flow through from the street, from a police contact, from somebody uh, referring themselves for assistance and ensuring that at every turn, the things that typically would would reduce follow through, like a delay, making an appointment or a fee or a service that doesn't really fit what the person is looking for, that all of those things are addressed for the entire population. Not only that, there is a distinct pathway, as one might expect, uh, Canadians would expect this, that is responsive to the needs of Indigenous communities and that is contributing in some, in some way to this large outstanding project of reconciliation. So they're they're thinking it, you know, through in, in this respect well with Indigenous leaders doing that work. So it's, it's as I said, it's an incredibly ambitious process of change and one that in the last six or eight months is beginning to show some fairly compelling evidence of, of impact, even, even based on what they've done. It's interesting. I mean, coming to this conversation, I have to say, I mean, I, I have read a fair bit on this topic. I have as recently as 2019 been on the downtown East side doing a radio series. I've been really influenced by the work of Johan Hari, who I know and admire. And I had previously come to the conclusion that harm reduction was the way to go, that this was sort of the best of terrible options. And and here's why, you know, the failures of the drug war, the ongoing cost of criminalizing drugs in both healthcare and policing and social costs. I had overdose author and law professor Ben Perrin on the podcast. He made the case that it's impossible to stem the flow of drugs at the border, that, you know, the fentanyl is being shipped into, into Canada and greeting cards uh, some of the time. And then there's a policing issue that the drug supply being so toxic like this that, you you know, the normal policing tactic would be to allow drugs into circulation long enough that they can identify the traffickers and build a case. So there's all these issues. And then on top of that, the issue that I think Gabor Mate has done such a good job of highlighting is that there's trauma 
at work here. And that, you know, if you're taking a population who's been traumatized and adding a layer of criminalization onto it, you're taking a very vulnerable population and, and making their lives even more hard. What am I missing? What am I missing in that line of logic? The availability of drugs is the same for all of us, for you, for me, for people listening. And most of us are not, not only are we not actively pursuing those drugs, but we actually have no interest in, in doing so. Harm reduction is essential. There is actually within the addiction field, no logical basis to make a differentiation in, in, in any way between harm reduction and other um, approaches to helping people overcome addictions. It's, it's, it's about as silly as saying, well, you know, we've got cars with brake pedals and then we've got cars with accelerators. Which one do you want? So, so when we're, we're using harm reduction as a strategy all the time, anyway, what's missing. And I like how you put your, how you phrase that what's missing is a focus on wellness. Mm. If we, if we lack an image of what's possible for this person in relation to wellness, then we're simply running around saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, or stop this, stop this, stop this. And we can't. The, the process of, of arresting harm, whether it's harm related to suicidal impulses or, or other, other harms, needs to be accompanied by an effort to promote a vision. And this the, the vision is not my vision or anyone else's vision, the person's vision of a greater state of wellness that can be attained. When we've worked with people deemed the hardest to house, so we've, we've worked with now many hundreds of people in interventions um, who are in this group uh, struggling with severe mental illnesses and, and polysubstance addictions. When we first meet them, now I'll give you stats, over 80% on day one say they want to resume paid work. Of, over a quarter have kids under age 18. About one quarter also were in provincial foster care. They absolutely have what we refer to as adverse childhood experiences mm. off the charts, off the charts. And when we offer them choices, so part of part of the intervention that seems to help people the most is one that intensively places choice in the mix. So right from the time we meet people, here's here's what I have to offer you. What, what's what's of greatest interest to you? Any of it. And that includes offering people choices of housing. When we offer people choices of, of housing, they they invariably want to start there. It's probably part of that's actually part of the reason why our part of our intervention got known as housing first. It's the term has since been corrupted, so I, I won't use it further. But but that's kind of that's sort of where that came from. So we offer people choices, and they'll and and one hundred percent choose places in neighborhoods other than the neighborhood where we meet them even though we've got places all around. When people make these choices, they, and this, you know, these are the same people who we wind up seeing in news reports, um, having been moved into some sort of building altogether and their neighbor concerns and all sorts of other concerns. In our experience in, in a randomized controlled trial where people were given choices, 
People were housed all together with a similar and very rich complement of resources in the building, and, and other people were followed in usual care. It was only the people who were given choices that experienced profound personal changes and also who experienced uh, marked reductions in involvement with crime and reductions in medical emergencies. When people were all housed together, even though they had the same resources, there was no difference in their rates of crime and medical emergencies compared to people who remained homeless. And the explanation is the culture of the building was shaped by the culture of the street. And in hindsight, why would we expect it to be any different? So the 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 opportunity for change is there, but we but it but it arises by giving people the opportunity actually that they want. They want they, they can't tell you exactly what they want. If they knew what they wanted exactly, they'd probably already be doing some of it. But one of the things they want when given choices is to be in a setting that feels normal. And they don't necessarily believe that they belong there initially. One of one of our favorite, one of my favorite stories is by someone who woke up in the night recurrently and ran from their place thinking that this can't be my place. What's happened to me? So, but over time, people begin to accept something that I think many of them wished could be true at the beginning, but they didn't say. And that is that I fit in here. And some would say I'm passing as a normal person. I'm able to, I'm feeling closer now to being able to actually reconnect with my son or daughter or with other people that I'm estranged from. Um, I'm feeling better able to connect with, with work. Keep in mind, I'm referring to people diagnosed with serious mental illnesses who've been struggling with addictions, but the opportunities, they, they, they still are, as we're told to remember, they're people first. And many of us who are housed experience mental illnesses. Many of us who are housed experience addictions, and we still are able to benefit from these social contacts and responsibilities. Um, if, without those, we'd be much worse. And to top it all off, the cost of intervening and providing people with these opportunities is no less or about the same as it costs to support them while they remain homeless. So harm reduction, fantastic. Our main question when we saw advocates for so-called safe supply was, among other things, so well, how much is it going to cost and, and how are we going to screen people and make sure we're not giving stimulants to people with bipolar disorder or things like that, but also Ultimately, what's the off-ramp? Then what? And um, none of my colleagues actually want to have this conversation with me. But um, but we have to start with the end in sight. We have to start, yes, reduce harm. But ultimately, we need to be promoting opportunities for wellness and a vision of wellness that people are entitled to because the evidence is abundantly clear. People with the most severe addictions the most severe, are fully capable of experiencing profoundly different states of well-being. Many refer to it as recovery. Recovery doesn't mean abstinence. It means a fundamentally different experience of wellness compared to where one was before. That's really, I think, what we, what we need to make available to everyone. And listening to you, I mean, this is quite optimistic. And I think listeners will be very surprised to know that this your view is quite controversial, actually. 
And part of the reason that I invited you on today is I wanted to to talk to you about a recent article in the National Post. And this is about a provincial government database you've maintained in your research since 2004, the Inter-Ministry Evaluation Database. I believe you've been quoting from that research. And that the Ministry of Public Safety informed you quite abruptly that it was going to delete this database. Talk to me about how this came about. Well, the backdrop was that several ministries and uh, I've been this, this was not my idea. This whole IMED thing was not my idea. I was I was in a, the right place, I guess, at the right time in the early 2000s. And a group of deputies in our provincial government who were all near retirement were concerned that um, we weren't linking information about about vulnerable people enough. And that if we did, we would see not only where the combined impact of justice, health, and um, financial assistance was helping people. But we'd also see instances in which the combined effects might be harming people. So we, we uh, the first question was, can we link all this information for the population? And, and we did. That was the proof of concept took two years. And then it became normal. And every year since, it's been um, updated and renewed. In the most recent cycle, the ministries responsible have agreed to um, renew the data in order to examine some some questions relating to mortality and especially uh, particularly during COVID. So we got that grant and the Ministry of Health, one of the, the one that contributes the greatest number of uh, variables, um, had already renewed their agreement with SFU mm-hmm. in order to do that. So while all this had happened, um, I made a presentation to deputy ministers. The presentation suggested, among other things, that we use this database because it had been used to evaluate several interventions over the years in BC and shown how how people can can be assisted, that we normalize the use of this with people's consent so that when we're providing new services or current services to help people exit homelessness with addictions, that we again, with their consent, use this information to see how they're doing and how, how our services are, are resulting in, in their outcomes. One week after I made this presentation, I got I got a letter saying, thanks for the last 18 years, please destroy the database um, in three weeks. And I didn't know how to make sense of it at the time. I Actually, it took me months. But I learned eventually that when I made the presentation, the province had already committed to rolling out a large number of congregate forms of housing for people, which our research had shown don't result in much change, with consumption sites built into them, which would be a sort of a, another game changer compared to what we had done research and, and not expected to result in any improvement. So I, I'd shown them that the data could be used and that and that when they were used to evaluate outcomes from congregate housing, especially the results were poor. I think that's the main reason why. But that, that, that is specifically that, that, that notwithstanding the last 20 years or so of, of results, the government of the day did not want it to be possible to um, rigorously evaluate what they were currently doing. Well, well, we'll certainly reach out for comment on this, as did the National Post. And it is interesting that the ministry reversed 
somewhat and allowed for existing or says it allowed for existing projects to conclude and allowed you access to the database until March 2023. Is that accurate? And, and where are things at with that? Yeah, n- well, no, not really. I mean, they they also they issued a statement to journalists that we had been provided with an option to rebuild the database and that we hadn't taken advantage of that option, which is completely false. I, I I'm on my my website, I put together a brief blog pointing out the errors of what the what the government was claiming. Um, we we can't rebuild the database from this other source that they're referring to. It's it's not it's not it's simply not possible. And as for you know not reaching out, we had meetings right away with this alternative source, and they're fortunately they're they're documented. And so for some reason, the the government thought that in response to this reporting, it it could essentially just kind of say blah 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 blah, and it would go away. They didn't put much thought into what they what they released. No, and and no, the database isn't really terribly useful. We we only have access until the end of next month with written approval, case by case, written approval from the province. But the only circumstances in which we would need that are if some previous project was questioned, let's say by an investigator or an editor. And we needed to look at data again, we, but there are no updates to the data. So we're so we're not. That's the crucial piece: is that we're not able to do any novel analyses. Um, and they didn't give us that, by the way, for about eight months. I was simply civilly disobedient while explaining that that this was a, a horrendously misguided, abrupt order that threatened research. It threatened research norms. It threatened the success of current doctoral students working with these data and and I was asking for just more clarity around like where is this coming from which which was still not not provided yeah so it's uh it's now I think something that we need advice from our information and privacy commissioner on you know if people um in one in one instance one just one of many if if people you know who are currently homeless experiencing serious mental illnesses give their consent for us to access data about them so that we can learn from their experience. And and the goal for the people giving consent and our goal too, is so that those results can result in better services for other people. If we do that, does the province then have the authority to come in and say, you got to destroy all that right away? Because because there are not only researchers' interests invested, more importantly, there are the interests of the people who gave us consent, and there's there are the interests of the countless other people who will come into crises and situations of need, and where the responses of the public or public services stand to be influenced by what's produced in, in empirically. Does the province have the right, regardless of those interests, to simply say, tough, it's our data, that is the provincial government's data, no one else's? Um, that just doesn't make sense. To, it's not how I was taught to think as a researcher, how I train my own my own uh, uh, students. So I, I, but these are not questions that the province uh, was at all willing to discuss with us uh, so far. So, so we'll go to the privacy commissioner for an opinion, but... Um, I don't think the issue is over. Mm. 
And Julian, just lastly, I, you know, hearing you talk and, and thinking through this issue, I mean, one of the themes of my podcast has been the stifling of debate that we've seen in the last couple of years and the stifling of viewpoint diversity and the pervasiveness of groupthink. Can you just spend a few moments sort of reflecting on that trend from your perspective? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's worrisome in this area. I thought we had more of an open forum for discussion. Having worked in addiction since the 1980s, I've seen and, and others in the field have seen some really acrimonious debates, accusations of fraud, people actually having to sort of relocate because of the actions of others in the addiction community. So it's a, it is a very, uh, at times contentious field, but I nevertheless thought, and by the way, wrongly, that we had a tolerance for, um, for diversity. My experience started about two years ago. My colleagues and I published a review on, on the public supply of addictive drugs in which we raised a number of questions and pointed out that there was not and by the way, still it is not evidence demonstrating that providing drugs to people outside of the context of treatment in um, mixtures that would essentially replicate what they would be aiming to get from the black market, evidence that that results in net reductions in harm. There isn't. So we put this out and we, what we what we hoped would happen is that attention would focus on so then what? What are, what are some of the things we need to discuss? Instead, a group led by um, the BC Center for Substance Use here in, here in BC put together a letter saying, kind of bizarrely, I know, that they, they agreed with our conclusion that, of course, there's no evidence, but no one should read this report because they, they called it critically low quality. They mm-hmm. used those some scorecard thing. Okay, so so it's kind of just an interesting reaction. If you if you agree with the conclusion, why take so much emphasis to malign the methods? And what do you I mean? What do you think about our our then what? But that wasn't the point. The point was not to pursue any kind of a you know they're not they're not legitimately trying to serve as academic policemen for the public, you know, caution, don't read this because it's really bad. Um, they, they, they wanted to stifle debate. And so there's more to this, though. They then, on official BCCSU letterhead, wrote to conference organizers where I was scheduled to speak and instructed them to uninvite me because of the low quality of my work. And fortunately, the fact that I know about this, uh, the conference organizers resisted that. But in other instances, we, we, our team has suffered. Um, I mean, my, you know, I, and I feel um, a lot of remorse about this. Our team has lost opportunities for funding and for further work due to uh, partnerships. And well, if we say yes to you, then we're going to create problems over here. So this whole landscape gets very messy. And, uh, you know, we have to work this through because because of how it's arisen and my commitment to to the field and to and to the work there's no option for me to kind of shrink away so i have to continue getting the word out thank you tara and i have to you know continue making the case as clearly as i can that we can do much better much much better mm. 
And we will certainly uh, reach out to the center for comment on on that as well. Um, And to end here, let's talk about your vision going forward. You before were touching on this much more optimistic view on addiction and on the capacity of human beings to recover. Let's just spend a moment on what that might look like should our priorities change. Wow, thank you. Well, in 2006, Senator Mike Kirby was wrapping up a massive contribution to Canadians on the topic of mental illness and addiction. And the resulting report titled Out of the Shadows at Last was meant to alert Canadians, possibly shame Canadians, into acknowledging the the gap and neglect that we had allowed to accumulate in our collective failure to follow through on the institutionalization. So the the recurring theme throughout this document is a call for community-based recovery-oriented services. So again, harm reduction is integral to this, but the key thing is having a vision of what would recovery-oriented mean? What would it mean for to, to create space for people to experience the greatest improvements in wellness that they could? Where we see this probably now, um, it, and by the way, we've done almost nothing to make that vision a greater reality in the years since. I could argue, actually, things have gotten worse. But some of the places where people have taken matters into their own hands and made profound differences are clearest in Indigenous communities, where where there is an immediate recognition that problems involving addiction are problems that affect all our relations, and that restoring wellness means paying attention to cultivating those relations. It's the fact of the strength of those relations that is the, well, that's the reason why many of us aren't looking to score fentanyl today, because we have relations in our lives that matter more to us than taking drugs and that would actually be threatened. So this opportunity, the opportunity that Alberta is is developing um, more conspicuously than any other place in Canada, shows us ways in which uh, an opportunity to help advance reconciliation, as I've mentioned earlier, but to do so in ways that actually have equivalent relevance to all of us, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It will involve, though, not only provincial governments, given how we're structured, provincial governments uh, accepting or making a commitment to that, but it'll happen community by community. Each community's resources and strengths um, that can be made available will differ in, in, in slight ways, but that's the level at which we need to have this conversation. With provincial leadership, it, it's doable. Alberta's showing the rest of the country that, that it is doable. I, I think you know from the conference activities last week, I know that other provincial governments, several were there, were saying this is the direction we are going down. We are going to be emulating what Alberta is doing. It's, it's extremely encouraging. And I think as, as, the, as the evidence of the effectiveness of that approach uh, becomes better established, it'll be incumbent on all parts of the country to um, embrace a, a similar approach. 
Well, it's certainly one of the big issues of our time. Uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. You've given me lots to think about. Thank you so much, Julian, for coming on. A great pleasure. Thank you so much. Lean Out did reach out to the BC Centre on substance use for comment. It directed us to the letter that Summers mentioned, signed by national experts in substance use and addiction, which we will link to at my Substack. The Centre also sent a statement, which reads, Presentations at conferences that influence public policy and clinical practice should be evidence-based and peer-reviewed. Concerns were raised with the subject of this particular conference presentation, which was based on a self-published, rapid review of safer supply that was not peer-reviewed and using a well-established measurement tool to assess the methodological quality of such reviews was rated as being of critically low quality. Among the primary issues with the review is a flawed search strategy that resulted in a number of studies unrelated to safer supply being included and a number of important and highly relevant studies being excluded. Beyond these methodological concerns, Other issues are evident with this review, including the misrepresentation of study authors' expertise, a lack of a public health perspective, and the failure to acknowledge the current state of safer supply research and other publicly available data. LeanOut also requested comment from BC's Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General. It also sent a statement, which reads... The province strongly believes in the value of integrated data and academic research. The motivation to create a new data innovation program, DIP, and transition the data previously stored within the Inter-Ministry Evaluation Database, IMED, to which Dr. Summers had exclusive access, was to establish a program that enables all academics in the province access to integrated data to conduct projects for public benefit. The IMED Steering Committee began discussions about transitioning to the DIP in the fall of 2020. At that time, the chair of the committee spoke by telephone with Dr. Summers and socialized the idea of this transition, including the rationales of allowing more academics in the province to access integrated data and supporting increased data collection from across various sectors of government. The DIP brings together all the data from the previous IMED and more and has enabled important research into homelessness, basic income policies, mental health, and other social factors. Unlike the IMED, the DIP allows for equitable access to data for all academics who submit a research proposal, which BC Corrections has encouraged Dr. Summers to do so that he may continue his important work. Both statements are published at my Substack, tarahenley.substack.com. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.